for the kingdom of God and its expansion in this world. As I mentioned at the beginning of our service, we have some missionaries with us this morning. I want to introduce our panelists this morning that will be joining in our conversation. Uh, to my right here are Steve and Jen Hagen. Steve and Jen Hagen are IMB missionaries in the Philippines. IMB is the International Mission Board. You'll hear more about that in a second, what that is. They have been serving in the Philippines for 11 years, and they're here with us this morning. They're here this summer. What's technically what you're doing this summer called? It's not furlough anymore. What's it called? Stas. Stateside Assignment Stas. Okay, so if you want to keep a running tally of how many acronyms we throw out, there's the second or third one, IMB being the first. So Stateside Assignment here for two or three months. Two months. Great. And they're here with us this morning. They graciously have agreed to join us. Can we thank them again for being here all the way from the Philippines? Thank you, guys. And then the the face on the far right side of our panel should be a little more familiar to some of you. Uh, This is our very own Ron Copeland. Ron is one of our associate pastors here at Riverview. He not only helps us with the administrative and business side of the church, but also helps spearhead our missions work as a body. Ron previously served with the IMB, the International Mission Board, for 11 years in Kenya via Nairobi. Can we thank Ron for being with us in this panel this morning? Yeah. All right. So I'm throwing around some terms that we want to go ahead and get some definition to and some explanation of. We're going to assume this morning that some of the terms IMB and other those things that you've never heard of those. So some of you have some familiarity. You're just going to have to listen to some, some, some review. But I want our folks to understand what that is. We are a Southern Baptist church. That's the denomination we're a part of. And as an SBC church, we support and give resources to fund missionaries through the IMB. Steve and Jen, why don't you lead off with us? What is the IMB? Explain what that is and explain your role in that organization. It kind of 10,000 foot level view. Yeah. Um, so like you said, we're with uh, IMB. That's International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Hence the reason we go with IMB because the other is kind of a mouthful. But um, as, as a Southern Baptist church, you make it possible for us to get to do what we do. Uh, you pay our salary and I get paid to do the best job in the world. So, um, uh, like you said, we, um, we work in the Philippines. We work with tribal churches, and we help those tribal churches to be able to send out missionaries to unreached pi- tri- tribal groups. Um, and right now, we're working in uh, four different languages um, that the Bukalo tribe, they were former headhunters. They've sent missionaries there. They've gone in. They've learned the languages. And they've got a missionary team there working with the people to plant churches and disciple leaders and raise up, um, raise up churches in those areas. And so we get to work together um, both with the churches that are sending them out as they help to send them out and together with the missionaries they've sent to establish training. And we're trying to pass that all off so in the future um, they'll be able to continue that on without us. So a few moments ago we took an offering. Uh, if you put a dollar in the offering plate, which I hope you did, but if you did... Every dollar you put in an offering plate at Riverview Baptist Church, in part, a percentage of that, roughly about 10%, is going to fund missionaries like this in front of you this morning. So when they say, as you heard Steve say just a moment ago, that we pay their salary, that's technically accurate. Uh, we, are ra- we pay their salary. They do not raise their own support. There may be some special projects they have that they'd like to get funding for on, their, on the field that they're working with. But they're here today not to ask for resources. They're here today to say thank you for the service that we're already providing to them. So I want you guys to understand that. 
another piece of information just for your awareness. As of about two months ago, a month and a half ago, um, I, as your senior pastor, was elected to the trustee board of the International Mission Board. So now I'm technically kind of their boss. Pray for us. Pray for them. Exactly. That was the follow-up. Um, but that's a blessing that I'm not just support representing our denomination. I'm representing you. That trustee board, 70, 80 folks, is what really sets the course and direction for the International Mission Board uh, that we support. Ron, you've got some background and some experience with the IMB, but you're actually coming to us this morning to talk about a little bit different angle. Uh, I want our folks to also hear some of the very specific work the IMB is doing around the world as it relates to disasters. Talk about that work that's going on, Ron. Some of you know, um, to use another acronym, my family accepted a VRI from the IMB. That means we took a voluntary retirement, uh, we participated in a voluntary retirement program about nine months ago. Um, That was not a bad thing in our life. It was at a point where we were um, uh, mentally and and spiritually prepared to come back. And so um, uh, that was a good thing. We served in Kenya for 11 years, as you heard. Uh, A good bit of that was helping pastors start churches in the slums of Nairobi, just some of the most dangerous and um, um, difficult uh, living areas in the world. We were able to do that, and I want to talk to you a little bit today about our partner in that effort was Baptist Global Response. Sorry for another acronym, BGR, Baptist Global Response. And they have two um, types of work that they support. Uh, One is the disasters that Spencer was talking about. When you have a tsunami or an earthquake or a hurricane or something like that, they're one of the human needs, human relief organizations that's at the front of the queue because they've already established the um, relationships with Red Cross, United Nations, all those types of agencies that uh, facilitate that kind of work. And within hours, literally, we can be on the ground through Baptists can be on the ground through Baptist Global Response, responding to those human needs. It's always strategic, though. It's always with uh, the involvement of missionaries that are familiar with the culture and language of the the, the area that's affected, and uh, that's one part of the work that Baptist Global Response does. The part that I partnered with them is more of a community development type effort. So the pastors that I was aiding and assisting and and encouraging and training to start churches, they needed a way to support their families in these very poverty-stricken areas. The churches weren't able to really support their needs. So we helped them with, um, with grants from Baptist Global Response and training that we provided, given our business background, we helped them start small businesses. So they would grow vegetables or sell clothes or um, uh, run a bakery or a car wash or something like that during the week to support their families and then serve their churches uh, also during the week, but especially focused on the weekends um, on their church work. So Baptist Global Response was our partner in that. Uh, There's also a table out in the hall that has prayer guides and some gift catalogs um, that you can pick up and some information cards uh, that will tell you more about Baptist Global Response and ways that you can give your tax-free gifts to, uh, to assist in those types of efforts. Uh, the gift catalog is quite interesting. You can 
purchase a water filter. You can purchase a goat or a cow or chickens or lots of other interesting things that will go directly into um, supporting these types of mission efforts around the world. All right. Thank you. Um, back to the IMB, we just heard about a partner of the BGR, Baptist Global Response. I want to hear a little bit more from you, Stephen Jen, about the work you're doing in church planning specifically. You kind of hit that a little bit, Steve, that you're working with a tribal group, and you might define that for us, what is a tribal group, and you're trying to get that tribal group to plant churches in another group. Describe the work that's going on there and give us a little definition of what you mean by tribal group. Yeah. Um, well, basically, when you say tribal, you basically think you're thinking of a minority group. They identify with their, um, they have a separate language, separate culture. Um, you know, these guys even have a separate way of dress. Like I said, the, the churches we're working with, they're coming from a tribe that um, up through the 60s was headhunters. Actually, it carried on into the 80s. Um, they would, that was kind of their crowning achievement for a man to be proved as a man was to take a head. And so now, um, we were assigned to an area about 24 hours south of there working with a kind of a collectively called the Ogta tribal group, but it's actually several different languages, could be divided into as many as eight different tribes uh, right now down there. And um, when we were working there, we just saw that, um, one, there was just too many of these different groups. There wasn't other organizations that were coming in there and too many languages for us to learn them all. The other thing is, um, when we got them together with some of the believers from the Bukalo tribe, we really saw that um, there was a connection and a shared understanding they had from at least that shared background of being uh, tribal. They're, they're minority groups. They're looked down upon. Um, they're not, they don't have the same education opportunities and things um, that the rest of the Filipinos would have. And so there was just a real connection that was able to happen by understanding one another better. And so the last uh, six years or so, we've been focused on helping these tribal churches to be able to work together and um, send out missionaries, train them and send them out and um, uh, provide ongoing support for them as they're ministering in these different languages with the different Ogte groups there in Bicol. And so that's kind of been our role. We're kind of starting to pass off more and more of that. Uh, Like I said, we've been doing that for six years, so more of the training, almost all the training is being done by them. We kind of provide a consultant role right now, both for church leadership and for the missionaries they've sent out. And we're looking into trying to do this in um, churches from other tribal groups in the Philippines that are interested in sending out more missionaries and being able to train them. Yeah, over the past couple of years, as we've seen this um, paradigm in action of tribals reaching tribals, we've really come to believe that it is the most effective way to reach the remaining tribal groups in the Philippines. That's our firm belief. And so um, as we look at the future, what we're really hoping to do is to be able to implement the same missions model and to mobilize and train missionaries from other tribal groups to go to the unreached tribes in the Philippines. And I really appreciate them unpacking that for us because one of the false assumptions we can make is that American churches are the only ones sending missionaries to the farthest reaches of the globe. Uh, We can think, well, we're America, and we have these churches and these resources, and we're sending missionaries, and our missionaries go into these places, and it's just kind of a one-for-one kind of thing. But what you're describing is actually that there's a group of indigenous believers, churches that are there, that are actually sending missionaries. And what you just said is that's actually more effective in your minds than the white Americans with a lot of resources coming in and reaching them. You talked a little bit about white Develop that for me. Why are you finding that to be more effective with a, the Bukalo tribe reaching the Okta? Why did you guys shift paradigms 
you said six years ago, but about halfway into your term there. Describe what you've seen and why that's been beneficial. Yeah, um, I think probably the biggest thing that really just sticks in my mind was a conversation I had with an Agta believer, a guy I was had spent, I'd known for several years, was trying to disciple him and um, raise him up to being a church leader. And he got together with some of the tribal guys from the Bukalo tribe, some of the believers there. And afterwards, I was just talking to him about this idea we had of trying to help them to send out missionaries. And he said, you know, that would be so much better. And really what he summed it down to is he said, you know, I know you love us. He said, but you don't understand us. You don't understand how hard it is to not know how you're going to feed your kids, to not know how you're going to take care of their medicine if they get sick, to not have had education, and all these different things that he said, these guys understand us better. And, um, you know, in this situation, and I I mean, I don't by any means believe that that means the... Our church here as Westerners, we have no role to play anymore. But in this situation, it's really been clear that God has directed us into going this way. And the exciting part about it for me, too, is, you know, this is the tribe that um, Jen's parents were missionaries in when she was a kid. And so a part of our heart was there. But as they've made the sacrifices, both in sending people out, releasing their leaders to go, um, supporting them as they go, as the church has made those sacrifices by looking beyond their own um, area, their own people around them, we've seen the growth that's happened in the church too. You know, God intends for all of us as his church to be a part of the Great Commission in Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. And as we've seen them get more involved in the sacrifices they've made, um, we've seen that it's just been a huge revive, uh, brought a real revival for the church and a real um, um, a reawakening for them. And so you would say that it's affected the tribe that they're trying to reach. So they've, they've sent out leaders, missionaries from their current tribe to this new place. How has it affected the tribal churches that have released the leaders? How have you seen it impact those churches? Well, that's what he was talking about. That's, that's the group that's been reawakened and revived. It's been amazing to see the growth in the churches as they have become. They've looked beyond their own walls, beyond their own people, and started looking at what God would have them to do and being involved in reaching this unreached group. Um, it just has brought a new life. Before they were, they were good churches, I mean, they, but they were kind of focused inward on what was going on inside their church, and they had some ministries going on in their own area. But once they started looking outside at how God would have them be involved, it was just amazing the unity that came together and the sacrifices that they made together to make that possible. Um, One of my favorite stories as we were going through the suggesting the possibility that they might want to send out missionaries and mobilizing them for that, casting vision for that, um, one of the one of the Bukalot leaders broke, broke down and actually left the building because he was in tears, which is very abnormal in Bukalot culture. Men don't cry. And he came back in when he composed himself, and he said, you know what, um, it, there, was, there was a time when missionaries came to us and brought the gospel to us. Now we have the opportunity to be the ones to go and bring the gospel to another group. And what can we say but yes? So sometimes I think we assume that tribal indigenous folks like that have a lot to learn from us. But I think what I just heard from you guys is we have a lot to learn from them about being willing to release resources, release even maybe some of our best leaders, which as we joked about in the first service is really hard to do sometimes, right? Man, this person is really serving effectively. They're doing a great job in their context. But there's something biblical about saying when the Lord calls them to go, the best thing we can do is to say, yes, we might take some initial setbacks in areas of ministry or leadership but the best thing for a called person to do is to go. So, and for the church. And it's the, the best church, thing yeah. for the church to send them. Yeah. 
And I think the Higgins would agree that the sacrifices that the indigenous folks are making are much greater than, than we make even leaving to, to go overseas. Their sacrifices are beyond belief, really, uh, that they make. So that's the big picture, guys. That's a little bit of what Steve and Jen and what previously Ron was involved in as far as church planting goes and getting indigenous folks to plant churches in other indigenous places. I want to drill down, though, into the weeds. That's kind of 10,000 feet. I'd like for our folks to hear a little bit about what a typical day in the life of missionaries in the Philippines looks like. Describe each of you. I think you've got both something to share. Describe what your day looks like typically. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously every missionary is going to have different roles, and it'll all look different. Um, Even for me, from one week to the next, it varies a lot. Um, There's weeks I spend about half the time traveling, which means about half the time I'm at home, and I'll spend hours in my office preparing. Um, I go up and I watch the kids' games and stuff at school now that they're at an international school there for MKs. and um, you MK, know, so missionary, missionary kid. kids. Another Sorry, acronym. another acronym. <laughs> um, so we're, uh, we have about half the time where I'm there. I'm home, I'm doing work in the office and preparing teaching materials and preparing for meetings and things like that. And then the other half of the time I'm traveling, either in the car or sitting with a group of pastors, sitting around discussing and planning through and working through problems. Um, in their churches, working together to how to support and raise money for these guys, um, helping them look at how they can, um, better ways of increasing their economy. Um, you know, you can give sacrificially, but if you have nothing beyond just your own food, um, you can't do anything. And we have partners together with that for helping them to establish economy up there. Um, maybe I'll be down working with their missionaries and helping them to brainstorm of how we're going to get into this new area. There's communist rebels in some of the areas, and sometimes you need a you need a way to get in there or you need to find a contact or there's people who are listening but they're just interested because they have nothing better to do and they're not actually growing and how do you say it's time to leave this area and move on to people who who really um, are open to the gospel and so um, yeah when I'm when I'm traveling sometimes I I get the privilege of getting to hike up in the mountains and um, um, sleep on the floors with the people and stuff those are uh, some of the perks of my jobs, as far as I would consider it. Um, uh, my wife always is shocked by the fact that we'll spend two weeks where we've been up in the mountains and I'm hiking every day, and then we How get the How many day of off. you would understand climbing a mountain to be a perk of your job? <laughs> Raise your hand. A few of you would. All right, good. Yeah, I hit my day off, and I'll go back out for a hike. That's what I want to do on my day Not off. Not me. So. I want to be in Starbucks. <laughs> Steve, that's you, Jen. Talk about your vital role in the mission. Yeah, for me right now, um, with Steve traveling half the time, that means that about half the time I'm doing the single mom thing. And those of you who have done that for a stretch of time know that that's a challenge, Um, especially even more so over there in a third world country where you don't have a lot of the same conferences and comforts and conveniences that you do here. Also, when Steve travels, he usually does not have cell phone coverage, so we'll be completely out of touch for long stretches of time. And so um, just doing the single mom thing and working really hard to help the kids continue to thrive because we know that if the family starts to struggle, we're going to have to cut back and change some things about our strategy so that Steve's not traveling so much. And so we're just working really hard to make sure that everyone continues to do well and they're continuing to walk with the Lord and grow and reevaluate often so that we can continue with this kind of schedule. Um, I'm really thankful for a support network now where we are, where we were before. We, I didn't really have that. And so now I have people I can call when the car breaks down or when the washing machine won't work or something like that. So I'm thankful for that. Um, and then 
we still do quite a bit of traveling for ministry as a family. On all the school breaks, we'll take a trip either north to the Bukalo churches or south down to the missionaries and the Agta world down there. And um, so we do, and when we're out there, then obviously life is very different with, you know, basically camping out in a village and washing clothes in the river and, all, you know, basically camping. But it's for shorter periods of time than typically Steve does. So you were touching just there on the two tribal groups you're working with, the Bukalo and Okta. How far apart are those tribes again? Describe that again. That's a pretty good distance, if I remember right. Yeah, it takes about 24 hours That's by to bus. the southern part. Yeah, if you go up to, to the northern to part. 30 hours. Yeah, 36 even once they hike into the northern area. Now that's okay. the end of the road. Some of them will hike two to six hours beyond that. Well, so, I would hike two to six hours. They'd be an hour to three hours. They're faster. <laughs> so when you first went with the IMB, your assignment was the Okta, Correct. And halfway through, you discern, let's get the Bukalo involved in sending missionaries, which it sounds like has been wildly successful. Describe the Okta group of people to our folks. That's the primary group you've been focused on reaching. Uh, there's a good bit of information I think would help our folks to get their minds around what's that group of people like? Why has it been so challenging in the past to reach those folks? Give us some of the information about, about that group of people you're working with. Yeah, the Agta are uh, very unique in the Philippines. Um, they believe they came from Africa, that they're African pygmies. Um, so they're, they're smaller, they're black, they're curly-haired. Um, and um, so they, they brought with them their nomadic hunter-gatherer um, thing. But in the course of trans- moving to the Philippines, they lost the kind of the group family clan identity. And really, they think of themselves only in the immediate family. And so... Um, they, they've scattered all over the place. In the last hundred years, they've lost their land. And so now they've ended up as kind of the outcasts around society. They're the squatters. They're the um, sometimes tenant farmers. Um, they, they get overlooked by the government. They are looked down upon as being lazy and thieves and stupid. Um, and the sad part is really they, they see that in themselves. They, they caught enough teaching from the Bible where they believe in a God, but they believe that God created them different, that he created them lazy, he created them stupid, and um, that they can't attain to anything better. The exciting part about that has been when, um, when, some, when the gospel enters someone's life and they do believe and the Spirit of God changes them, when they believe that it's impossible for someone to change who they are and that people start seeing that and they see the change that the Spirit of God makes in somebody, it's opened up all kinds of doors. Um, you know, that was one of the uh, hardships we had was there's just so many open doors that were opened by the new Agta believers that we were unable to follow up with them. And yeah, one guy had gone to 37 different villages and he had open invitations to come back and bring full-time people to, and we were going, that's excellent, but. <laughs> so how many villages are we talking about in total? When you talk about the Agta tribal group, well, can like you give I, me a numeric? Can yeah, like I, well, it's about 100,000 people. They, they don't really set up in villages. They spread out. Um, so it's around 170,000 barangays, they call them. It would be like a small town. Um, they would just be scattered as family groups in those about. 150. We've estimated it'll probably take somewhere around 800 churches to actually give access to where someone could get to a church within an hour to two hours walk um, for each of the Agta to have access to that. So did you guys get all those numbers? A hundred, over 100,000 people that when you guys first went there were considered unreached. That is very little access to the gospel between 2 to 5%. Less, less than 2%, closer to 1% of them were believers. 
And what you're saying is the ultimate goal is 800 churches so that of those 100,000 plus people, they have access to a church within an hour. Is that what you said? Okay. Okay. I just want you guys to have the scope of that in your minds, right? I mean, that's just, as American Christians, it's very difficult sometimes for us to get our minds around how sparse the gospel influence really is in some places of the world. We are supporting and sending missionaries so that we can pierce that darkness with churches. Talk for just a second. We've been hitting this reached, unreached thing. Uh, Drill down a little more into when you would quantify or at least describe this group of people as reached. Obviously, the ultimate goal is 800 churches. Where's the point at which time you stop calling them unreached and you start calling them a reached group? Describe that for us. Yeah, basically what you're looking for is where there's enough believers and churches that they have a, um, they have a chance to be able to spread the gospel throughout the rest of their people group. Um, you're not, you know, here there's all kinds of unbelievers um, still in our area that need the gospel, but there's churches here. And so that's what we're looking for in a reach group is that there's churches there. Um, the statistician guys, they will say somewhere between 2 to 5% is normally when you see that there's a critical mass of believers that people will probably have access to the gospel um, sometime in their lifetime. Um, and obviously, you know, you're looking for hopefully the health of the church, that there's leaders that are, um, they have a vision to reach out to their people group and stuff. So that's kind of what we're hoping is to get that um, that church planted there amongst them, that they can be the ones to continue to reach out. To reach the rest because of with people. the Bukalot being so effective in reaching the Agta, how much more so will the Agta believers be in reaching their own people? And even like the Bukalot, they're still planting churches in their own people group. Um, I think right now I know of five, five church plants they're doing at the same time as they're sending missionaries out to so another So some of us, group. when we hear the word church, might think this building. You don't mean that. You don't mean brick and mortar I know this is a, is a missiologically and ecclesiologically complicated question, but in basic terms, what do you mean by a church in these areas? You say they're planning churches, starting churches. What are you talking about when you talk about church, Steve? Yeah, the church is, I mean, it's the, it's the people. It's the body of believers that function and work together. Um, in some places, it works better for them that they have built a little bit of, of a lean-to on the outside of their house, and that's where they gather together on Sunday but church really is beyond just a meeting once a week. It's the body of Christ working together, encouraging one another, teaching one another, um, so that we can bring the kingdom of God to the world. Ron, did you want to add something into that? Yeah, I think sometimes we as Baptists get too wrapped up in our numbers of when a group is reached or unreached based on a percentage. I think it can vary uh, between different groups of people and, and the environment they work in or the, that they live in. Uh, I think the other important factor is I don't think they're reached until you have a well-grounded, theologically trained uh, group of pastors. Now, they're not going to have a, an M, a, a master's degree or a Ph.D. from a seminary, but I think it's important to invest in their theological education to make sure they're sufficiently grounded um, in their faith and in their, the biblical teachings, uh, mainly to prevent uh, the old belief system to bleeding back into the churches that they're starting and leading. So I think that's a qualitative factor in addition to the quantitative stuff that right. we look at. So most of the time, the work that we are supporting is the slow, careful, faithful investment 
sharing the gospel, raising up leaders. But there are times when acute situations arise, disasters, uh, uh, very you know, acute problems that arise in a country via weather or some other kind of natural disaster. And that's where BGR steps back in. Ron, describe some of the ways BGR will step in Baptist Global Response. There'll be a quiz at the end, so I hope you're taking notes. Uh, how does BGR step into that space to try to partner with folks like the Hagans to help? Sure. You remember about 12, 12 years ago, there was a, just the biggest tsunami that anybody could remember on record that hit uh, Indonesia. Uh, that was the, kind of the ground zero of that. It was a place that had not had a gospel presence in many years. Um, the people were very resistant. In fact, they were some of the headhunters, if I remember right. You, that's more your side of the world than mine, but... Um, that was actually an opportunity for Baptist Global Response and other Christian entities to get into a place they hadn't had access to. So what was a disaster in the world news was truly a disaster, a human disaster, with hundreds of thousands of people losing their lives, but it was also an entry point for the gospel. And so I, I think we need to kind of keep the big picture in sight that God can take something that... Um, it's difficult to understand why it would happen, why he would allow that to happen, um, why those people had to die. But um, now there are churches in that very area that are thriving and growing and actually reproducing and sending missionaries to other parts of, uh, of their world out there. So uh, Baptist Global Response is one of the agencies that uh, was on the bleeding edge of making that all possible. Just to add into that, I was smiling as he was sharing because I get to know some of the stories afterwards. We meet with some of the people who are there, the ongoing ones there. And um, one of the hard parts about IMB is somewhere upwards of 90% of the people that are sent out through IMB are going places where they can't tell publicly or put on the Internet where they're at and what they're doing um, because of government restrictions and things. And a lot of the amazing stories that I get to hear, you guys will never get to hear, the stories of the martyrs and the way that God is using um, using them to just reveal the importance of this message and just that um, um, all these stories. And, you know, IMB has been very aggressive about saying that we're going to put people wherever God's calling them regardless of the risk. I mean, we know about the risk. I mean, we knew when we were going in that other organizations had said, you know, you don't send missionaries there. It's too dangerous. And, um, you know, they advise everyone of their risks, but they're... Um, to my knowledge of large organizations, they're the most aggressive about saying, if some, God's calling someone there, we're going to find a way to get there. And so I think it's something that Southern Baptists we can be proud of, that they're getting people into those kind of places. Um, even if, unfortunately, you don't get to hear all those stories all the time. Um, um, yeah. Something that I wanted to add, too, with BGR, when there's a huge disaster of some sort, the earthquake in Japan or the earthquake in Nepal, and you're trying, you want to give towards something, BGR is a great option for that um, because the, they are directly connected with IMB missionaries on the ground. And when there is a disaster like that, they're not just going in and randomly distributing stuff. They have a plan in place. They've got a plan for follow-up. They're working with the local churches. They're working with the local IMB missionaries. And so when you give money to BGR during a disaster relief, you know that that money is going to be used very strategically. There's not going to be waste with that. Yeah, and there's, there is times, too, where you can give to an organization and you don't realize what's going on on the other side of the world. Um, some of the major 
um, you know, child sponsorship organizations actually end up being some of the biggest barriers um, as they they'll tie in together with they'll later, tie in but. together with a with a Catholic group or whatever, and actually will prevent anyone from ever and attending a Bible. You're study You're sending otherwise. money from this side of the world, and you have no idea what's actually um, happening on the because ground because of there. who they will who they partner with when it actually gets on the field. And so sometimes there's a good thing in knowing a name and knowing who they're connected to. So we are a Southern Baptist church. And not everybody will say that publicly because that bears some reproach depending on the community that you're in or circles that you're following on. And in some reason that's happening because denominations in general have kind of fallen on hard times. They're kind of viewed negatively. I, I believe denominations are important because denominations mean that somebody someplace believes something. There's a group of people gathering together, and there's a theological core that's gathering them together. But what's especially I'm thankful for, especially about the denomination we're a part of, is that we're not just gathering around a doctrinal statement. We're also gathering around getting that gospel to the world. The focal point of what makes the SBC the SBC are these two sweet people sitting on this stage, that we are sending people thousands of people around the world into some of the darkest places. But I also happen to believe that one of the reasons denominations have fallen on hard times is because people don't understand what they do. They're not clear on how they're functioning and what they're doing. It's always encouraging to hear these kind of stories of how these resources are being used. One of the ways I want to turn our conversation now, unless you have something just super urgent you wanted to say. Well, I was going to say part of it is, too, a lot of the denominations have lost their course. And one thing Southern Baptists are good at is fighting. And when I say that, I say we fight. There's a lot of people within us, and I appreciate it. We have people like Spencer who are willing to step in and say, this is what we're about. We're going to keep, and we're going to keep fighting for that. We stand on the Word of God. Right. We stand on this is our direction. This is what we're about. Right. And I appreciate that. And so um, Southern Baptists could have gone the way of a lot of other denominations. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I wouldn't be in them anymore if they had. You guys will read stories in the news that will say Christianity's dying in this country. You'll read stories in the news that people say millennials are leaving the churches in droves. Uh, there is no doubt that there's a changing landscape in America in 2016. But one of the things I'm very thankful for is not 100%, but to a fault, our churches are going to hold fast to what we believe, no matter the cost. And that cost is rising every day. One of the things I want to turn our attention to now is the possibility that maybe some of you are listening to them share and you're wondering, I wonder if God would ever call me to do that. One of the signs of a healthy, thriving local New Testament church is reproducing, multiplication, sending people out. And so part of what I want to turn our conversation towards is just hearing a little bit from each of you, all three of you, about your stories of how God called you to serve in the way that you're serving. Just a quick question. How many of you feel like you're called to ministry? How many of you? Everybody should be raising their hand. Yeah, we're all called. Every single believer is called to ministry. The question is, God may end up calling some of you to vocational ministry, where this is your job, where you go around the world, and this is what you do. Sometimes, it's, for some of us that may think that God may be leading that way, well, you just can't see a, a, an on-ramp into that. I want you to hear from each of them about how God called them and how they ended up taking the gospel to the nations. Well, for me, like we've mentioned already, my parents were missionaries in the Philippines working with a tribal group that had been hen hunters and actually heads were still taken while we, after we moved in up there. And so I saw firsthand the difference the gospel made in that people group. And I saw where 
These had been a headhunting group feared by everyone around them who were a weapon of the enemy used for destruction, and now God was using them to reach the people around them with the gospel. And so seeing that firsthand, even when I was just itty-bitty, I just couldn't imagine doing anything else with my life. I couldn't imagine anything that would um, fulfill that need to be involved in what God was doing around the world. And as I got older, I just um, I started praying for God to confirm that in my heart, and it just kept playing in my head. And so finally I actually got to the point, I said, well, God, it seems like you're leading me to go into full-time service overseas. If that's not how you're leading me, please make that obvious. I'm going to step out and start heading that direction, and if that's not what you have for me, please stop me. And he just kept confirming each step of the way that that's where he was leading. So, Yeah, for me, I think it really started when I was young. My older sister developed leukemia and died. And when I lost her in the mourning process, it occurred to me I was going to see her again. But if she had never heard the gospel, if she hadn't been introduced to Jesus Christ, where would she be now? And then I started finding out that there's not only people in the world, but entire people groups that had no access to the gospel. And that just was a thought that wouldn't escape me. Um, you know, I went, went through high school and um, off to college, and I actually um, I backslid for a year and just went away from the Lord. But as God drew me back, it was just a thought that wouldn't escape me, is that there's people out there who don't know about the forgiveness of Christ. And, um, you know, keep a long story short, um, we did. We ended up pursuing, um, just stepping out with what we knew. We went through four years of training. And through all of that... With a different organization. With a different organization. Through all of that, there was never a specific, clear direction of what we were supposed to do. But we did know that this was a work that needed doing. And so we were looking for our place. And really for about a year in the course of that, I really felt God's saying, you should check into IMB. It was something our pastor had talked to us about years before that, and I'd really just ignored it. And being a good Baptist, I took a year to listen to God, you know. Um, that's a joke, <laughs> although not that funny. <laughs> Shouldn't be that funny. <laughs> but after about a year, um, God just used some really incredible circumstances for me to say, okay, I will. I'll pursue it. Um, my wife didn't want to. We ended up in the car. We are on five or five headed down to Springfield on the way through to Lebanon. I asked her, I said, well, what do you think? We were getting in the car to go meet with a couple from IMB to ask them questions about it, to look into um, going over with IMB. And she said, well, I'll be honest with you. The only reason I'm in the car is because you're my husband and I'm supposed to submit. She said, but I don't see anything they could possibly say that would convince me that this is God's will for us to change. Um, we were happy where we were. And we got down there, we talked to him for a few hours, we asked him a lot of questions, and then he turned it on us, and he, he ended up offering us a position, and working with tribals in the Philippines, working with the churches to send out missionaries. I took a few years before we got there, but he offered this position and described what he was thinking. And I could sense with everything in me, this is what we'd been waiting for. I didn't know it, but this is what we were waiting. It wasn't what we were expecting. But I had just promised my wife in the car three hours earlier that I wouldn't answer him. If there was a job out there, I wouldn't say yes. We would talk when we got home. But before I had a chance to say a word, my wife answered and said, yeah, that's our job. God, she gave, went on for about 10 minutes to explain all the reasons why it was so clear that this is exactly what God had been preparing for us. So even though it was hard to leave where we were comfortable, um, it was just so clear. And, you know, and what, like Jen was saying, it was just really a matter of, of starting out and then God directed us step-by-step step along the way as we've gone. But that was just a really dramatic time where he did that of overcoming her reluctance. I think that's a pretty typical uh, journey of coming from uh, uh, confusion and, and 
not being on the same page to, to clarity and being together. And that's kind of what happened to us, too. Um, uh, Nancy and I grew up in Baptist churches. Um, I also drifted away, but when we uh, had our daughter Erin, got back into church, started volunteering uh, for local kind of things, a bus ministry, um, and some other things uh, in the church, and started going on short-term mission trips to Mexico and Peru and Thailand and places like that. Um, and I think somewhere during that process, I was probably the first of the two of us that sensed that God could use our business skills uh, in missionary work. Nancy wasn't quite so sure, um, but we also started talking to the to the people that counsel you. And that's one good thing about the IMB. They have excellent people to, to walk with you uh, and counsel you through the, uh, through the whole process. And she had her aha moment as well. And uh, after that, there was just no turning back. And um, we, uh, yeah, we wound up in Africa six months after we got seriously involved in the process. So it was, it was a good journey. So one more question about this. For the sake of time, I just want you to answer one question about this. What would you say to someone out there that might be praying and or considering vocational mission work on the other side of the world? What would you guys say to them? As I said earlier in the first service, I could talk for hours on this topic, and if you'd like to come and talk with me, I'd be happy to talk with you. But I'll stick to my notes so that I can keep it short. If someone's considering that and thinking about that, what that tells me is they likely have a still small voice that is prompting their heart to think to check into the possibility, which I think is very likely in my experience that you're likely called into missions. Um, if it's just a, a passing thought that occurred once a long time ago, maybe not. But if it's something that keeps recurring to you over and over again, that I think it's crucial that you actively pursue that possibility. Because if God is calling you, you need to be obedient. If you're not, for the sake of your own spiritual health and for the sake of the people that God's called you to, it's, you need to be obedient to what he's calling you to do. So practically, what should you do? Ron touched on this already. I think the first thing is you need to talk to your church leadership. Um, express your heart. Say where you're at, what, how God might be leading you, what you're thinking about, and get some input from them. Jump in with both feet, serving in your church, getting as many ministry opportunities. See what ways God will, can use you. Do some research. Read some books about mission strategy, biographies. Do some online research about different organizations. Talk to as many missionaries as you can to hear about their calling and their experience. Go on a short-term trip. See how, what God does in your heart during that time. But the most important thing that you need to do is to pray. Ask that God will make it really clear to you. It's often not an audible voice or an earth-shaking experience. It's often just a still, small voice in the recesses of your heart, but it's not one that you want to ignore. One possibility is to do what I did and pray that if that's not what God has, that he'll stop you, and then go ahead and head that direction and see what happens. If you try to steer a ship that's dead in the water, you can mess with the rudder and crank on the rudder all you want. It's not going to affect the ship. Once the ship is moving, the slightest touch to the rudder changes its direction. I think that sometimes fear of stepping out in the wrong direction can keep us ineffective and dead in the water. Sometimes I think we just need to step out in faith and trust that God will direct us as we go. If you're one of those people that likes a book to help you through that process, there's a really good resource called The Missionary Call 
The Missionary Call by David Sills. He's a professor at one of our seminaries. He's also a co-trustee with, uh, with Spencer, with the IMB. And uh, that's a really good resource, uh, easy to read and a very helpful resource. One of the on-ramps that's not well known that we have for those of you that are in college and that are graduating, we have a program called the Journeyman Program, which is open to men and women. It's a two-year uh, assignment, international assignment, where you would go to the mission field for two years, receive the benefits that a full-time missionary would receive, but it would just be for two years. One of the great regrets that I have is I wish I had slowed down on my way from college to my master's work to do this. Um, I really wish I had, not because I necessarily feel called full-time to it, but I think it's just an incredible experience where you get exposed to what missionary life is actually like uh, and really can see if that's a sense of where God's calling you. There's a fairly high percentage of people that start out in the journeyman program that will come back, settle down, get married, maybe have some children, and then go back as full-time missionaries. a very high percentage of yeah. them that do. I want to turn to Stephen Jen just in closing. Stephen Jen, how can we pray for and support you in your work in the Philippines? Yeah, there's basically four ways that you can be involved. Um, the most important thing that you can do is to pray for us. Um, it really is a spiritual battle over there, and it will only be won through spiritual means. We desperately need your prayers. Um, and on your way out, in this hallway right over there, we have a display table set up. If you would like to give us your email address, sign up for our email updates so that we can let you know how to pray as we're over on the other side of the world. You can also pick up a prayer card to remind you to pray regularly. We desperately need your prayers. Another way that you can be involved is to give to our ministry, and that happens as you give through your local church. They give to the cooperative program. It also happens through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering in December. All of that money goes directly to support IMB missionaries overseas, and sometimes we also have special projects that you can get involved in. Another thing that you can do that's really significant is to encourage us and other missionaries. Um, when you get an update from a missionary, if you hit a quick reply, and it doesn't have to be long and involved, but just wow, God's really working, we're praying for you. That in and of itself is a huge encouragement, just to know that, wow, somebody actually read it, <laughs> what I spent my time um, investing in. And maybe even drop a note when I haven't sent an update and just say, hey, we prayed for you this morning, we love you guys, and we're standing behind you. Just a couple of lines can make a huge difference on a tough day. Um, one last way that you can be involved is just occasionally there's opportunities to go, to come and join us on a short-term trip. If you're interested in that possibility, just let me know, and I can keep you posted about opportunities as they arise. Very good. Steve, anything you want to add to ways we can pray for you and the work you guys are doing in the Philippines? Yeah, I mean, from month to month, that's going to change. So the best way to be praying for us is to be um, on those updates and stuff. Like Jen said, it really is It's a spiritual battle, and we've seen... So often, it's not, we're nothing special. I mean, Matt knows me from way back, and he can testify to the fact I'm, I'm nothing special, but God does stuff, you know, and um, he likes it when we ask. So we'd appreciate your prayers. Go ahead, Ron. There's just a mysterious way that God works, that those words of encouragement, unsolicited, they just come on the perfect day. <laughs> I can speak to 11 years of that happening, so. I would highly commend the email update to you. It's a great way to not only know about what's going on in the world and to be encouraged with them. I'm oftentimes incredibly encouraged and blessed by the work that's going on there. Can we thank these folks for sharing with us this morning? Right, I want you to watch this video and we'll close together.
we're not talking about people who are lost and don't know the Lord. We're talking about people who are lost and don't know the Lord, and there's nobody who speaks their language that can tell them. There is no church that exists. There is no, uh, not a large enough group of people within that people group, or within that tribe or nation, to, to reach themselves. That's an unreached people group. When I'm riding through the city on my bike, and I just look around me and I see mobs of people, mobs of people, and looking into their faces and remembering to look into their faces and um, thinking, is there one of these people, do one of these people know Jesus? Probably not, probably not. If what you want to do is change people's hearts and change millions of people's hearts, this isn't something that you can do in the flesh. So prayer is really the lifeblood of our work. All around the city, seeing so many students around uh, 11 and a half million people as I commute, the whole train is filled with people and the reality that the less than 1% of them are Christian. Just That's what really breaks my heart and seeing the need for the gospel here. The core of the gospel is life on life. It's people touching other people. And if there's anything we can do, it's to get the people that are, that are here connected with the people that are there.